Well, good morning once again, everybody. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Ryan, and uh, I'm glad to see you here on Easter Sunday. Thank you for worshiping with us. Uh, as we were just reminded, we are opening up to uh, Mark chapter 16 today. Uh, if you've been with us for a little while, you know we've been working our way through the gospel of Mark for about a year. And so for some of us, this is a culmination of a, a long study. But if you're just joining us for the first time, uh, I'm, I'm fairly confident you're going to get the best part uh, in Mark chapter 16. Uh, if you have your Bibles open, you may notice that, uh, that, that there's a note there about where the gospel of Mark actually ends. And this is a debate among scholars. It's been going on a long time. It has to do with... Uh, uh, texts and original texts and all that. I can tell you all about that afterwards if you're so inclined. First grab a cup of coffee and then find me and we could talk about uh, textual criticism. Um, but, uh, but we're pretty confident that the gospel ends with verse eight. And, uh, and so we're gonna talk about that, why it ends so abruptly, because that might not have se seemed like the sort of Easter that you're having so far. Like I'm hoping no one runs out of here trembling and afraid. Uh, but I hope that, that, that something of, of what we see in Mark chapter 16 rubs off on us when it comes to the resurrection. Here's why. Uh, a number of years ago, when, uh, when I just started dating my wife, Heather, her parents invited me over for dinner. And we're sitting at the dinner table, her dad, who's a physician, her mom, her brother, her sister, and, uh, and I'm a little nervous. I'm trying to make a good impression. They're very nice people, so they're being very kind to me. So they're having a normal Raymond dinner conversation. And if you grew up in the home of a physician, you know what a normal dinner conversation sounds like. Someone asked her dad, how was your day? And he told them how their day was, uh, how his day was in some detail, I might add. Now, I started looking around wondering, maybe this is a test, you know? Maybe they're gonna see if I can make it, hack it, hold down my dinner while they're talking about surgical procedures. Uh, no patient names were divulged, no HIPAA violations at the table, but I will tell you, my sensibilities greatly offended because I wasn't used to that kind of conversation. That sort of clinical talk about the sorts of things I talk about maybe in private with my doctor, but when a medical textbook was retrieved from somewhere in the house and passed around the table just to make sure we got the full visual, which I did. I was convinced what sounded really strange to me, really foreign to me, was just the way they talked about the wonders of the human body. And it seems to me like it's very easy for us to talk about the resurrection in rather clinical terms with, with just sort of a detached interest, keeping it at arm's length, being appreciative of the story, but not really grappling with how troubling it is, how deeply unnerving the news is and must have been for these women when they heard that Jesus went from being bodily dead to bodily alive, newsflash, that's not normal. And this is where Mark really helps us out, actually. Because Mark doesn't let us get away with a clinical, detached discovery of the empty tomb. No, the 
The women in this passage respond the way you would think somebody who just experienced the first resurrection. Not the last, but the only one since. With some level of trembling and astonishment and wonder that they realize that this is not the most normal thing in the world. It's actually the very thing that changes the world. And so this morning, what I want to do is we talk about this passage together. I want to let Mark um, give us an experience in recovering astonishment and wonder about the resurrection. Whether it's the first time you've ever really thought about it, given it a long look, or whether you've grown up knowing all about this story, that we would put away this idea, at least for a few minutes, that we can keep all of this at an arm's length and talk about it in a clinical fashion, very analytical. We begin to grapple with what this means, not just for them, but for us. So let me pray for us. I'm going to ask God to help us do that, and then we'll jump in. Almighty God, before whom all hearts are open. Send your Holy Spirit as we have just prayed and sung together to open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold Jesus, crucified and risen. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark helps us recover our sense of wonder and astonishment when it comes to the resurrection in two ways. First of all, by helping us to look at what the resurrection is and helping us to long for what the resurrection means. So we're gonna do some looking and we're gonna do some longing, all right? That's the plan. Uh, the first thing we need to do is we need to do some, some looking and this is very much an invitation from Mark because the first few verses of this account are verses of what it was like for these first witnesses of the resurrection to look. We're told that, um, that, that there are three women, the three women who are named here were all present just a few days before. They saw Jesus crucified on the cross. They watched as Jesus was laid in a tomb, which would, would have been carved out of rock, sort of like a cave. And they watched as a large stone, a very large stone, in fact, was rolled in front of it. And in fact, they're talking about this as they're making their way in the early morning light to the grave to anoint Jesus's body. They're talking about some logistics and a big logistical problem, which is who's going to roll that stone away for us? Uh, Mark gives us a hint in telling us it's not just a large rock, it's a very large rock. I don't know if that does it for you, but a very large rock, archaeologists would tell us, because we found these sort of walls before, these rolling walls, probably weighed about six to 700 pounds. And they were placed in a channel or a rut right in front of the tomb. And so it was, these were hard to move on purpose. They really weren't worried about people getting out. Maybe they should have been. They were mainly worried about people getting in. But when they get there, what does Mark tell us? What's the first thing they see? They saw that the stone was rolled back. And I don't know about you, but that probably would have been my cue to go call for reinforcements, but 
They're braver than some of us. They keep walking. They walk all the way up to the tomb. They go inside it. And when their eyes adjust to the light, they realize to their shock that Jesus's body is no longer there. That's what they see. Now, immediately, and Mark doesn't tell us this, we get this from Matthew's gospel, immediately there is an official explanation from Jerusalem, like within hours, because word gets around. The guards who were there go back and tell the very people who were enemies and opponents of Jesus, who had him crucified in the first place, and they say, "Uh, you're not going to believe this. So the official press statement that goes out is that Jesus' disciples stole Jesus' body. Now, on the surface, that, that seems plausible until you get to know Jesus' disciples. I mean, these are the guys who not that long ago bailed on him. Like, they bailed on him two days ago. And not only that, they're not exactly SEAL Team 6, okay? And we know that there were armed Roman guards at the tomb. So the idea that they would somehow pull themselves together emotionally, organize themselves into a militia, take over, overpower the Roman guards, somehow get that stone back, steal Jesus's body, and then pull off the greatest hoax in history. It's a little far-fetched. But people weren't asking those kind of questions back then. But over the years, other explanations as to the empty tomb have cropped up hundreds of years later, thousands of years later. People are still reckoning with how this could have happened. So some people have speculated, well, maybe Jesus didn't die on the cross after all. Maybe he just kind of like passed out and then came to, which again, kind of raises more questions for me than it answers. But what you find is that no matter what explanation, what theory you go out and research, and there are plenty All of them have one thing in common. All of them assume that Jesus' tomb was empty. All of them. Why? Well, because even the most hardened skeptic of Christianity knows that if at the time uh, you wanted to stop all of this resurrection talk, all you would need to do was produce a body. I mean, that's not difficult. Uh, sell some tickets, parade people past, Christianity done. I mean, think about it. You can, you can go to Red Square today and you can do a tour and on that tour you can see Lenin's body. Uh, you can go to the Met in New York City and you can look at the remains of Egyptian rulers from thousands of years ago. You can go to Medina, the city of Medina. You can visit the burial site of the Prophet Muhammad. But there are no such tours in Jerusalem for Jesus. Why? Because the tomb was empty. Now in saying that, and in some cases just making a historical case for that, it it doesn't demand that you accept Christianity's explanation for why that's the case, but it does demand an explanation of some kind I mean, it does, it does demand that we take a closer look, that we ask, how did that happen? And so that's the first question I would ask you this morning. Uh, have you looked? Like, have you looked? I'm not talking about your 
comparative religions professor in college, I'm not talking about the people you follow on social media, have, have you, have you considered the overwhelming problematic evidence of an empty tomb? The second thing that Mark encourages us to do is to not just look at what the resurrection is, but also to long for what the resurrection means for us. And for this, we need to keep reading and listen to what this young man dressed in a white robe says to these women. Now, that's, that's Mark's way of describing an angel, again, somewhat unnerving that he's sitting there. But... Um, In the Bible, this is a common description for a messenger from heaven, and he delivers a message from heaven. So we have sort of the official explanation from Jerusalem. This is the official explanation from heaven of what happened. And so he says to them in verse 6, do not be alarmed. Okay, good luck with that. Uh, Do not be alarmed. Uh, You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. Now notice the very first longing that's being addressed here is the longing that all of us have for hope in the face of death. I mean, simply the setting tells you that. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, you know, let's step outside of this tomb for a moment into a more appropriate space to talk about Jesus. No, they are in a tomb and having this conversation. And And the angel isn't just talking about a metaphor. He's not talking about this idea that, you know, as long as the memory of Jesus lives in our hearts, then he's alive. Or um, a spiritual resurrection as if to say, you know, the spirit of Jesus after his death is something that inspires all of us. Listen to the way he says it. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. That's a way of summing up the first 30 years of his life. That's where he grew up. That's where he was a teenager. Uh, That's where he was a young adult. That's where he took over his dad's business. Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, who died. The same Jesus who lived is the same Jesus who died is the same Jesus, the angel said, who rose again who came out of the grave three days later. Now, look, I don't don't know what these women were thinking when they heard that. I mean, based on their reaction, we can speculate. They were barely putting all these pieces together. So I don't know what they were thinking when they heard the angel say, he is risen, he is not here. But I know what some of us are thinking. We're thinking of like the walking dead or World War Z, or zombies. Because it's really the only frame of reference we have for someone to go from undead to living. Like, we only have so many ways to think about that. But that's not what the angel is saying. He's not saying Jesus went from undead, or from dead to undead. He went from dead to alive, to fully alive ran across an article not too long ago. This is clearly somebody who watches those shows and those movies because he knows something about them. And he says this, the angel says, Jesus rose. He isn't shambling about like a zombie, but kicking down hell's door. He isn't swaddled like a mummy, but bursting the bonds of death in 
triumph. He is not without a body like a ghost, but bearing the glorious scars of the cross in his hands and his feet and his side. Jesus is not undead. He is alive. And you see, this is why this is important for us. Because what you often hear in our culture is the best way to find hope in the face of death is just to make peace with death. So um, treat death as just part of the circle of life. But we know down deep that it's just not right. I mean, our longings tell us differently. Our longings tell us that, that death isn't our friend to be welcomed. Death is our enemy. It robs us. It takes the people we love. It robs us of life. It's an intruder in God's good creation. We know that down deep in our souls. We know that that's true. And so we have a choice. We can either fake peace with death as if it's a friend, or we can cling to the one who has defeated death. You see, that's the Christian hope. It's not just pretending like we make peace with death or treat it like a friend. It's understanding it's our greatest enemy, but also trusting and believing that Jesus has conquered our greatest enemy. He's defeated death. So this morning, second question, where do you find hope in the face of death? Is it in your own capacity just to make peace with it? Or is it to follow the longing of every human heart for someone to defeat the greatest enemy, death itself? Secondly, Mark tells us here that there's another longing in our hearts which is met by the resurrection of Jesus. It's not just our longing for hope in the face of death, it's our longing for hope in the face of failure. Because this is what some of you are thinking and have been thinking for the last few minutes. Um, this is a great story, and I'm sure it means a lot to religious people. You know, like the women in this story who are clearly well-meaning women, I mean, good, I mean, almost like nuns, really, right? Devoted to Jesus, uh, getting up early in the morning when no one else was doing that, showing tenderness toward their Savior, all of those things that we associate with being religious, with being good, with being moral. And so we say, well, that's really a story for those sorts of people. But when you look at your own life, you would say, I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure that describes me. But listen again to, to, what, to what the angel instructs the women to do. He says to them, verse 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Now, on one hand, that just sounds like a nice heads up, right? Like, they probably appreciated knowing this before they ran into Jesus, like on Tuesday at the market. That would be awkward. Like, what, are you, what are you doing here, right? So... It's common courtesy to let them know this has happened. But we should remember who these guys are and what they were doing the last time we read about them in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the disciples, Jesus' closest friends, uh, when Jesus needed them the most, they bailed. 
uh, when, when Jesus was being arrested, they were running, like they were scattering. And they never came back. They didn't come back to check on him. They didn't, you know, attend the trial. Most of them weren't even at the cross when he was crucified. They just left. And Peter, Peter hung around for a little while. And he watched Jesus' trial from a distance. But if you know the story, you know Peter, one of the things he's famous for is swearing that he would never, never fail Jesus. In fact, he said, I will die for you and with you, Jesus. But in fact, before the night was up, Peter had denied Jesus three times. So the last time we see Peter, he is weeping bitterly because the crushing weight of his failure had finally occurred to him. See, this isn't what we'd expect the instructions to be. Again, I don't know about you, but if I'm sending a message to uh, my friends who were not there for me at my worst and in fact turned their backs on me at my worst, I'm not sure my message would be, I'll see you soon. Like we can very easily imagine the angel saying something like this, you go tell disciples and Peter, Jesus is coming. They better buckle up. Like, we're gonna need apologies in writing. There's going to be groveling. Just, I wanna let you know now, groveling expected and required and you better beg for mercy that he's in a good mood. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen here and when we read the other gospels when they finally do see Jesus, that's not what happens at all. Instead of scolding them for their failure, Jesus seeks them out. And tells them all is forgiven. You see the resurrection is not good news for religious people who are so good in their own minds, they don't think they need Jesus. The resurrection is good news for failures like me and like you, who know there is no hope of forgiveness without him. And that's not just the message of the angel. It's not just the words of Jesus. The resurrection itself is a declaration that all all of our sins have been paid for in full. So that when we trust in Christ, we are trusting that he has paid for our sins and he has been risen, as the Bible says, for our justification. So that we might know because of him and only because of him, we are made right with God. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking, wow, this, is, this must be good news for somebody who has their act together, but that's not me. I, I just want you to know, this is good news for me and this is good news for you because we have failed God and because we have failed one another because Jesus has not failed us. Now, 
Not too long ago, I, um, I met a delightful young man. When I met him, his, uh, his parents shared with me that, um, that he had been diagnosed as somewhere on the spectrum. We had this great conversation back and forth. He's hilarious, curious. And I learned pretty early on his favorite question. And then, this is how the conversation would go. So we're going to get some lunch after this. And then, oh, well, you know, maybe stop by the hardware store and get something. And then, okay, well, maybe we'll go back and you can watch some TV for a while. And then, uh, we'll take the dog for a walk. And then, I guess it'll be time for dinner. And then, I I don't know. Like, at some point it runs out. I don't know what we're going to do after. It was, and I looked at his parents. They looked at me and they said, yep, it's pretty exhausting. but it's also enlightening because I hear Mark asking that question in this story. I think part of the reason it ends the way it does is so that Mark could then turn to us all these years later and ask that question. And then? Now we know part of the the story is that the women did eventually share that Jesus was alive and Jesus eventually appeared to them and to others and and the church was born and all of that. But in this moment, in this moment of discovery and coming to the resurrection with fresh eyes, Mark wants to ask you a question. And then, and then what? Do we just remain uh, clinical, detached, showing respect, appreciation, interest? Or do we recognize that what Jesus has done here meets our deepest longings for hope so that we would no longer keep these things at arm's length, but that we would be filled with astonishment and wonder and even a little bit of fear so that we might believe. And so for some of you, what Mark is asking when he's asking you that question is, do you believe? Have you looked? Have you looked? Have you longed for what Jesus offers and have you trusted in him? And what Mark is asking others of us is this, okay, you believe this. You embrace Jesus as the crucified risen Lord and then How does that change the way you live to know that Mark's not only asking this question, he's giving us the answer, that Jesus is the ultimate answer to the and then question. Because in Jesus' resurrected body, we see where everything is headed. That everything broken will be healed. That all sorrow will be turned to joy. That there is coming a day when God will wipe away every tear And death will be no more. And then. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that as we discover once again or rediscover the wonder and astonishing message of the resurrection, that you would be at work in all of our hearts, according to your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for not scolding us in our failure, but seeking us out. 
that we might know your forgiveness, your kindness, and your love. We pray all this in the name of the risen one, our Lord Jesus. Amen.